Welcome everybody to this afternoon's event here at the Apple Store, Sydney. Would you please join me in welcoming our guests, Sean Baker, and this afternoon's moderator, Sandy George from SBS. Hello. What a great crowd. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks you for coming too, especially... Thanks for having me. Thanks for having the film at the festival. Um, Tangerine is Sean's fifth film and his others include Prince of Broadway and Takeout and Starlet. Can we start by um, you explaining how this film relates to your last one, Starlet? But also I'm interested in this film in the context of your work generally, you know, why you like to make films. Okay, well, uh, this is my second Los Angeles story, I guess you could say, uh, so it relates to the previous one that way. Um, Starlet sort of set me down the road of focusing and uh, sort of exploring the world of, of sex work in a particular area, and that happened to be the adult film industry in the San Fernando Valley California. Um, and I think it perhaps didn't get out of our system. Um, Chris Bragash, who is my co-screenwriter, and I, we decided that um, there was another area that we wanted to focus on in Hollywood. It, it borders Hollywood and West Hollywood. It's, uh, it's an intersection, Santa Monica and Highland sort of an infamous intersection that's sort of an unofficial red light district and I live about a half a mile from it and it's an area that always catches your attention if you if you commute in Los Angeles if you're familiar at all with that area you you're familiar with that corner and um, so so uh, so maybe this was just a logical progression from the last in terms of just making a an, focusing on that subject in another area in Los Angeles um, and why I like to make movies. Well, I, have no, I, mean, <laughs> I, I love movies and I, uh, I'm a cinephile and uh, I love to explore worlds that I'm not familiar with so that I can educate myself about those uh, worlds and, and those cultures. Um, yeah, that's about all. That's, <laughs> that's how I answer that one. Often filmmakers are told, though, or especially newcomers, that you sort of should write about what you know. So you, you don't subscribe to that? Well, I actually, my first film was about all I had to say about white straight guys in the suburbs. <laughs> and that's all I had. And it was, and it was done. That was all I had to say about my upbringing. And then um, I... Uh, but this is... But, the way I um, look at that is that as long as you're telling a universal story, a story in which we, we can all identify with, a, you know, a humanist story, a, a story that, you know, uh, covers themes that we can all identify with. For example, with this new film, I think there are two themes that are being focused on friendship. We all have friends. We all understand friendship. Um, infidelity, um, which uh, some of us have dealt with and some of us has, have 
been on either side of that situation. And uh, so there are those two themes that I think are universal and, and ones that it is writing about what I know to a certain degree because of those themes. I like the way when you talk about this film and you talk about the fact that you like making films about worlds you don't know, that the only way to do it um, responsibly and respectfully is to collaborate. Can you take us through the collaboration on this film? Sure. Um, well, uh, basically Chris and I decided to pound the pavement. We, 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 we actually um, just set about going into the neighborhood, introducing ourselves to um, some of the women who worked the area and just other people who frequented the neighborhood and just telling them what we were doing, what we were looking to do. We did not come in there imposing any sort of plot or script. We actually walked in there saying, um, well, I'll tell you what happened. We basically, we were looking for somebody to collaborate with. Um, I made a previous film called Prince of Broadway, which is about uh, West African hustlers who sell counterfeit goods in the, in the whole sale district of Manhattan. It took a year, it really took a year of us uh, having weekly meetings with the guys there and, and sharing stories and, and hearing about uh, and collaborating with our lead actor and developing a script together. That's exactly what happened in this situation. Um, we couldn't find anybody who, who was actually uh, you know, working that area, and I'm talking about, you know, sex work. Uh, but we did actually, we eventually did, but, uh, but um, we discovered Maya Taylor hanging out at the LGBT center, which is around the corner. It's on a block down from Santa Monica and Highland. And there was something about Maya Taylor, who plays Alexandra in the film, by the way. Um, she just had that it quality, something that drew us in. And I was in a courtyard of the center and I saw her 40 feet away and I knew that I had to speak with her. She's just had that thing. So we, wa we walked up, we, we told her that uh, we're legitimate filmmakers, you can, <laughs> and uh, we wanted to discuss a project. And immediately she just expressed so much enthusiasm and she was an aspiring entertainer. And, and I knew from that moment that we found somebody who would help us enter that world. And over the next few weeks and months, we would have regular meetings at the local fast food joint and we would hear anecdotes and stories, uh, stories of the, her friends who had worked the area. Um, she was very familiar with it. And um, I had shown her my previous films, so she understood my sensibility and it was an interesting thing about, uh, I think about a few weeks in, she, she said, Sean, I trust you to make this film and I wanna make this film with you, but you have to promise me two things. You have to promise that you show how brutal it is out here on the streets for these women. You have to show the realism no matter how un-PC or how hard it might be to watch. And two, I want you to make this funny. <laughs> I want you to make a comedy. <laughs> because, you know, that's how a lot of these women cope with their humor to get through their hardship. And, and I looked at her and I'm like, do you understand what you're asking? This is quite a balancing uh, act. That's gonna be difficult. And I walked away thinking, how are we gonna do this? But then I realized, 
moving forward and as we were starting to script it, that that was the appropriate thing to do because, you know, I wanted to make a film for the women who, as well, for, you know, that, so they could, that they could actually be entertained. So it was that the balancing act went throughout the entire production and pre, you know, the actual writing of it, the shooting of it, and then in post, trying to find the style that was most appropriate. But, um, but you know, I took those words seriously from Maya, and um, we actually involved them in all aspects of production. She eventually introduced me to the other lead in the film, Kiki Katana Rodriguez, and I, um, I knew when I saw those two together that they were just this dynamic duo, and I, I was going to write these two characters for them. And... Um, and to tell you the truth, it was, it was wonderful. This, I mean, Maya actually stepped away during post-production and said, I want to just see the final product when, you, when you're ready. But Kiki was actually involved in every step. And she would show up at my place every, when I would, I would cut about 10 minutes over the course of a week. And I would say, come on in and look at the 10 minutes. And she would give me notes. And uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. Yeah. I mean, what I love about the film is it's got incredible authenticity, like the vernacular and everything. And I suppose that's what's making me ask this next question, which is how much is Alexander and Cindy Lee playing themselves in a way? Because you do feel like they're people with 10 years of friendship behind them, you know? From that that part of it, yes, they are friends. Um, But... They are, they're not playing themselves. These characters are definitely... I mean, there are, there are bits of themselves in these characters. And as far as the vernacular goes, that was something that they just knew. They were from that area. They, 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 understand, they understood in the language of that, of that area. And, um, and we, Chris and I actually would write dialogue for them, give it to them and say, put it almost into the words of the street. Put it into the words of, uh, if you don't like what we've written, you can throw it out the window. As long as we're still covering the same beats, as long as we're covering getting from point A to point B and the exposition is there, we, we need authenticity in the, in the language. So, meaning, meaning that the dialogue wasn't scripted then? or Some of it was. We have what, what's called a scriptment, which is half a script, half a treatment. And it comes in at around 70 pages. Usually, you go one page per minute, or one, yes, one page per minute. So, usually, you have a 120-page screenplay. We worked off a 65 to 70-page screenplay. And sometimes it would say, sometimes it would just be a paragraph uh, saying, the girls walk down Santa Monica and discuss their favorite Christmas gifts. And then we would just, during, on the day, improvise and and uh, workshop almost as we were shooting. And then other times it was very scripted, such as, I don't know if, how many people have seen the film, but the, uh, the, the, the climactic scene at, at donut time in which all the characters converge, there were, that was extremely, that was very tightly scripted. Not only because there's Armenian dialogue in there that, in which, you know, I don't know Armenian, so every, it had to be scripted to the word, but also because of our budget and the fact that we could only use this location for two and a half nights, we had to be extremely economic in our shooting and fast. 
Can you summarise the nuts and bolts? Like, how long from when you met them did you start then shooting and how long did you shoot for? Uh, we started down this road... Well, we shot a year and a half ago. We shot um, Christmas season of 2013 and f going into 14. So a little bit in December and a little bit of Jan in January. Uh, but we had set down that road over a year earlier with our development and in our prep. Is it true that the police were called during the shoot? Uh, you know, <laughs> this is a podcast being broadcast and archived. What are you doing to me? Um, no, we, we went about this the right way. We had, we had permits, we had insurance, but we were also such a small footprint and we were using the iPhones. We didn't, uh, we didn't immediately s call out the fact that we were a feature film. We were actually very inconspicuous. So that when we had these scenes that, that involved violence on the street and chaos, yes, it drew attention. And there were a few times where the police were called. But all we had to do was whip out our permit and everything was fine. It happened on my previous film as well. It happens a lot. I try to shoot in a clandestine style and, 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 and on the city street to capture the chaos of the street. And sometimes it ends up where the authorities will get involved. Okay, so you brought up the fact that you shot it on an iPhone, but I'm sure you just didn't whip it out your pocket and, you know, start filming. Can you take us through the complications of that or, you know, the other gadgets you use, the other equipment, you know, what did you have to do in order to do that? Well, you know, uh, we didn't really... Uh, it, was, it was a way of... It started off with the fact that we really didn't have the money to shoot on the higher-end equipment. And I'm on my fifth feature film and I'm out of favours. So, <laughs> you know, there's no more begging, borrowing and stealing for me. I, I couldn't ask for... Well, I couldn't shoot on film and I couldn't ask for the Alexa or the Red. And then we are stuck with probably, you know, the lower end, uh, like the DSLRs. And to tell you the truth, I just wanted to set this film apart from other indies out there, and I wanted it to have a very different look. Even that being said, even the DSLRs, like you know, the Canon 5D or 7D, uh, that would have added an additional two or three crew members, um, focus puller, uh, media manager, and if I did it, I would have wanted it to do. I wanted. I would want to do it with like some classic glass so the lenses would have cost so much so there was we were running out of options and there's a Vimeo channel that I came across probably a few now but there was this one at the time and it focused on iPhone experiments short films being shot on the iPhone just music videos being shot on the iPhone and I was extremely impressed this was stuff that goes all the way back to the iPhone 4 or earlier and um, I was starting to contemplate whether this is the way to go. And then I came across this Kickstarter campaign for a company called Moondog Labs. And they created this anamorphic adapter that fits over the iPhone lens and allows you to shoot in true scope, which is, you know, the aspect ratio, widescreen cinema, 235 uh, to 1. And it, I was blown away by just the sample video they had on this Kickstarter campaign. And I reached out to them and I asked them if we could use their, their, their adapters and uh, they were in the prototype stage, 
but they were nice enough to send us three of them. And at that, I was just, at that point, I knew that this could be elevated to a cinematic level, the look. That along with an app called, the, called Filmic Pro, which was very helpful and, well, necessary with making this film because it allowed us to lock all of the, uh, it allowed us to shoot at 24 frames a second, had all the bells and whistles you needed, locking aperture and focus. And then um, doing a lot of post-production work on it, uh, color grading it properly, adding grain. So those were all those tools you know, combined to, to sort of to elevate it to that cinematic level that I was looking for. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, Mark Duplass and his brother, Jay Duplass, they were executive producers on the film and they're just extremely supportive and that you can always go to them for notes and for advice. And um, Mark was the one, I think, that sort of gave me that final thumbs up, that pat on the back and said, yeah, shoot on the iPhone, it's punk rock, do it. <laughs> and so, so when I heard that from him, that was really the official starting point that led us down the road. But there's always sort of a reluctance underlying what you say about the iPhone in a way. What, why was that? I mean, did it feel... Yeah, I won't put words on your mouth. Why was there any reluctance? Well, because there's reluctance. As you, you probably saw the reluctance that happened when film started transitioning to digital. You know, we don't want to let those things go. And this is... Um, I'm a cinephile. I still love the look of celluloid. I... I mourn the death of celluloid. I, uh, and so for somebody who grew up, my first film was cut on film. Like literally, I was taking two pieces, uh, you know, a razor blade and tape. Um, and now I've seen so much progression in terms of technology and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And uh, it's just, it's hard for anybody who's been in the industry for a while, this is my fifth feature film, and to make a, suddenly to to go onto a format that might be considered consumer or prosumer, it's a little difficult. I, and I mean, especially for my director of photography, who is just my co-DP, Radium Chung, extremely talented uh, cinematographer. He had just come from the Americans shooting 35 millimeter. And now he comes out to LA and we're running around with iPhones. So there was, I, I just think for somebody who might be a little more old school thinking, there was that we had to adapt. Would you do it again? I, I, I would. I don't know if it's going to be the next one, but I definitely would, especially in the last year and a half. I'm jealous at the people who are going to do it now because there's been so much, uh, you know, there's been an advance in technology just in the last year and a half. Uh, supposedly, and I just heard this the other day, you can shoot 3K on the iPhones now. So... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there, there are so many advances in technology that just has happened in the last year and a half where I would be, uh, uh, you know, that would just add to the amount of benefits that I found shooting on the iPhone. Let's talk about those benefits because I know there's a lot of filmmakers in the room. Like, what sort of film do you think really suits iPhone, suits the iPhone? I don't know if... Yeah. You have to stick to some, or, you know, to a particular genre or style. I really don't. Um, I think that you can, you can just explore all the different benefits that might come from it. I mean, I, I, 
these benefits for me sort of revealed themselves as we were shooting. I knew that we would be able to run around. I knew that we'd be able to be mobile and be able to shoot under the radar. I understood that part, but I didn't, I didn't know how beneficial it would be with working with my actors. See, that's, that was a big thing because, you know, Maya Taylor and Kitana, uh, Kiki Kitana Rodriguez, they're both first-time actresses. And I've worked with a lot of first-timers in the past. I always sort of, I tried to meld. My cast is uh, half first-timers, half seasoned. And it always takes that, that one week of getting over that hump for the first-timers to, to uh, really loosen up and become confident and forget that there's a camera in their face. This time around, I, there was no hump because everybody has a smartphone, so it wasn't intimidating. And I saw the way that from day one, uh, Maya and Kiki were just on the same confidence level as James Ranson. You know, James Ranson uh, from The Wire, Generation Kill, wonderful seasoned actor. And I remember the first day he came up to me and he goes, he had been working with Maya earlier. And he's like, Maya's really good. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, I, know, I know. But it didn't even take that hump, which was amazing for me. That was just one of the many benefits. But I think I went, I went far off answering your question. But, um, but what I, yeah. Well, well, I asked about whether there was a certain sort of film that suited and you said you can't pin it to a genre. But I suppose I meant, you know, like, it's probably useful shooting in small spaces, for instance, or small spaces. Whatever. The amount that, um, the amount of phones that you can have, you know, the amount of cameras you can have. A, you can. Uh, that's one. That's another thing. What else? Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, um, just the fact that you can actually grab a phone tomorrow and do it. You know, that's that's another thing. Um, when you rent cameras, at least in Hollywood, there's insurance, you have to get to, you know, whole camera packages, usually rentals, and this, this, this you, you buy a phone and after the shoot, you eBay it. <laughs> so. You'd be able to shoot a whole feature in a day if you had 20 cameras, wouldn't you? What was that? <laughs> You'd be able to shoot a whole feature in a day if oh, you yeah, had 20. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, eight crew members you said at the screening last night yeah very few um under 10 i mean usually six um we had our producers who were wearing many hats and um if any of you have seen the film the woman playing mama-san in donut time that's Shi ching Zhou. She's one of the producers of the film. She's also continuity. She's also wardrobe. She did all the costumes for the girls. So imagine her position. She was behind <laughs> that counter at donut time having to have her eye on continuity while we were shooting while being in character. Uh, we all had to do that. And um, for example, I edited the film. I became my own post-production supervisor and all, you know we just we with, the, with a budget this size we just had to keep it small um but on the street yeah and iron strauss who did our location sound recording who's a one-man show and um so earlier you said that you like putting first-time actors with experienced people but i'm sort of curious about what why what that adds to things do you think well, I love 
seeing fresh faces on, on the screen when I go to see films. Um, it adds to the reality. It, it's, um, it's just refreshing in general. And also it gives opportunities to aspiring actors. And that's what I always, you know, I love, um, I always look at the work of uh, Spike Lee, actually. Spike Lee always introduced somebody new. In every film he's done, he worked with A-listers, but there's always somebody being introduced to us. And he's introduced such amazing actors over the years to us. Um, and that's just something that I really admire and like to do as well. Um, but also, there's also something to do with the way that first-time actors, what they bring to the table and the way they interact with seasoned actors. It's very interesting. They, both parties rub off on one another. And so the, um, sometimes I see first-time actors picking up the method of some of the method actors, like actors who have studied, say, for example, Meisner. I will actually see the first-time actors starting to get into a groove of repetition, and it's completely subconscious, and it's really amazing. It's, it's really nice. And so sometimes actors sort of, first-time actors sort of adopt multiple methods, it's, and it's interesting. It's, yeah. I really love the taxi driver and the way that story interwove the other and sort of wondering where they were going to intersect or when they were going to intersect. Was that, was the taxi driver line, narrative line, always part of the film? It, it was. Um, I, well, for two reasons. Karin Karagulian is a dear friend of mine, has been in all of my films, and I think he's a wonderful actor, and I wanted to give him a, role, a lead role. Um, but also there is a, it just happens to be that there's a large Armenian community in Los Angeles and many of the, the, the cab companies are Armenian owned so it's very appropriate that it would be an Armenian driver um, Armenian American driver and um, yes we also were you're always looking for that B story that is that well in this case is sort of a parallel of what's going on in the A story so there you have two stories of infidelity converging at the end and um, it was there since the beginning. The only thing is that in editing, I edit my own films, so sometimes it's written for a third time. Uh, the way I always say is that you're, you write it once before you make the film, you're writing it again while you're making it, and you're writing it a third time in the edit room. And in the edit, we actually uh, discovered that it was better to hold off on the reveal of what Rasmic's intentions were. In the original script, right off from the, the first scene, you know about his, his preference and, and uh, so, so that was, was kept from the audience on purpose and I found that while editing. I love the scene where he threw the real fish out of the car. That was my favourite scene of the film. When he, when he threw the prostitute out of his car. Cause oh he, yes, and that's Anna Fox, who plays that role, and she's an adult film star in, in, um, oh. in L.A., and uh, she is just... Inc the scene wasn't that long. It was scripted to be a little bit shorter, but then when I saw what a wonderful actress she is, I, we, we extended it. She's great. She's great. Now, I'm meant to be timekeeping, but I didn't bring my mobile phone to look. What is the time? 
Okay, we're going to open it to questions now. There is a microphone, and um, if you're not meant to be in town, you're meant to be in another state, don't ask a question because it's being recorded. Um, who's got a question? Who would like to start us off? Charles is our runner, one in the front. G'day, how are you going? Thanks for bringing your film out here. And, uh, it was fantastic last night. I watched that oh, with thank great you. fervor. I can't wait to see it again. Oh, great. Thank you. I, I came down just to ask this particular question. I, there was a shot in the, the, the movie that I, I need to know how you, you succeeded in doing this. There's a, a moment when um, uh, Kiki is uh, dragging Dinah along the road. And um, that's, that's a great scene. And the camera is way up high. Right. And it comes swinging right down, and yep. they meet the camera, and then come right back up again. How did you do that? Yeah, um, that was one of those things where we just—it was experimentation. Uh, we, if we had shot it now, we would probably be doing it on a drone, a year and a half later. But then we didn't have access to drones, and so we actually went to the local paint store and got a 25-foot pole and put the camera on the end of the pole, and then and we didn't have monitors, so we had to. You know, we would do our shot and then review it. Not good enough, but we do it again. We ended up doing that shot probably about 25 times. And after a while, we stopped reviewing it every time. We would just go for like five or six in a row. Um, and you never know what we're, you're going to get. But uh, yeah. Excuse me? No, just a long pole that I would stand and almost use as like, a, like I was, if I was painting a painting pole. And I would just swoop it down on our actors and up again. Yeah, it's one of those things that we just decided why not start it. We, we, would, we wanted to exploit the iPhone. We wanted to see what we could do with it. And that was one of those things where it was like, why not just uh, move the camera more and uh, do these impromptu crane shots? Did you use Steadicam? We had uh, what's called a smoothie which is made by Steadicam and Tiffin, and it's a little stabilizer. And yes, you, you need that for the iPhone, at least for the iPhone 5S. That's what we shot on, by the way, the iPhone 5S. And, um, you know, the, the human hand is just, you're not stable enough, no matter how stable you are. When you see that on the big screen, that wobbly feel um, that comes from, I guess, the size, how small the, the lens is, the only way to, uh, to eliminate that is to get one of these uh, stabilizers. And we chose the, uh, the smoothie. There's a question over here on the edge, I think. My, my curiosity is about lighting. Like, especially there's that scene where um, Alexandra is performing and it's in the bar and it's really dark. I can't achieve that quality of darkness on my iPhone. I'm curious how you got around that. It was surprising. I mean, the iPhone 5A, 5S gave us... Uh, we were able to shoot on the city streets and everything at night and get an ex a nice exposure. Um, but Radium Chung always had something to back it up. Uh, so he would enhance the practicals. In the club, that was the one time where we were able... That we really were able to control the situation. We were shooting in a real club um, that had stage lighting. So he simply just 
I don't know exactly what he did, <laughs> um, but uh, he just enhanced whatever was given to us by the club. And that was why I think that that scene sort of pops out as, as lit. And that's, but we were going intentionally with a different style for that scene. It was supposed to be, almost be her fantasy of how the performance went to a certain degree. Um, so uh, we were able to lock down the camera light properly, give her backlighting, and um, yeah, I hope that answers that question. But the iPhone is surprisingly gr great in low lighting. Hi, thanks very much for bringing your film down, it's great. Thank you. Um, I'm, the, the iPhone's great for visuals, um, not great for audio. What, how did you do the audio and the sound design? Oh yeah, good question. Uh, we, I get that a lot, I get a lot. Since the film has gotten out there, I get almost on a daily basis, I get tweets and messages on Facebook asking how we, did this, how we recorded the sound on the iPhone. We didn't. Um, we had a professional, as I, Iron Strauss, I mentioned him earlier, he, he was recording it separately on his own digital system, um, Sennheiser mics, top of the line equipment. And to tell you the truth, I think our sound gear was probably more of a giveaway that we were shooting a feature film than our, than our cameras. Uh, he had the traditional sound cart, um, and we would tell him constantly, get it around the corner, hide it, hide it, because the boom pole and the cart would draw more attention than anything else. Um, but we, uh, he's, he, uh, it's just, he really is incredible. He's, He's six foot five, and he was throwing himself in the trunk. Every time there's a car shot, he's in the trunk. And um, he uh, also, the end, the last scene in Donut Time, I kept using Robert Altman as, as an example of how I wanted it mic'd. Uh, we had every character mic'd wirelessly in that shop so that I could play with, with it in post, and we could figure out exactly which lines to bring up or bring down. Um, and then, of course, um, we went about s mixing the sound properly on Pro Tools. We sunk it up in post um, and uh, mixed it properly in Pro Tools. Um, uh, Jeremy Grotti actually did the final mix, and I'm very happy with what he did. Questions? You told me Earl, oh, there's one at the back. Sorry, man. That's what I asked two questions. With your uh, camera mounting, did you use any fixed tripoding? And also with your viewfinding, did you use any sort of tablets or any external viewfinding other than the camera? The first part of the question? Did you Tripods. Oh, yeah. there are three sequences in the film where we locked the camera down intentionally just for style's sake and at beginning, middle, and end. Uh, the rest of the time, we kept the camera moving. And as far as monitoring system, no. That's the crazy part. And I, have, I own a, an iPhone 6 now, an iPhone 6 Plus, so it's, it's big. And I, when I see people's 5S, I can't believe that we are using that to actually frame shots and review shots. And not only that, but um, we are shooting anamorphically. So everything was squished while we were we had to frame it the way that, like, say, Sergio Leone would frame his westerns back in the day. We, we did not, we weren't able to see the final product until we brought it into Final Cut Pro and stretched it out. So, 
Radium and I just had to get used to the way that anamorphic would work. Question here. Hi. Um, how do you direct? Do you watch the monitor or do you watch the actors? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. And uh, I share DP credit on this. So a lot of the times I was actually behind the camera, which I love doing. Uh, I hate being the director of photography. I hate, you know, I, that, I leave that up to the professionals. But as far as camera operation goes, I usually, um, you know, take a hand in that. And I, um, it, it allows me to be very intimate and close up with the actors uh, so that I can actually look from the monitor to my actor, monitor, actor, and um, that's, yeah, that's pretty much how I do it. <laughs> the film played at Sundance, had its world premiere at Sundance. Did you, were you actually in the room? I only asked this because Sean told me yesterday that he never goes to his own films. No, I, I look at the first 10 minutes and make sh I make sure it's technically okay and then I, I leave. I, I allow my producers and my, my writer to, my co-screenwriter to, uh, to judge audience reactions, but it's too difficult for me. I don't do it. That cracks <laughs> Plus, me I've up. seen the film hundreds of times yeah. because I edited it, so I can't even, I can't stand to sit through it again. But you made a major sale at Sundance to Magnolia. W what are their plans for the film? And, and, and the reaction to it so far, has that surprised you, pleased you, you know, what? what uh, yeah, it actually has surprised me um, because I thought it would be more of a dividing film and maybe that's yet to come. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's been universally, so far, accepted and I've gotten a lot of love about it, um, which is wonderful for us because, you know, we... Uh, it, it was one of those films where you're just not sure how it'll, because of the style I talked about earlier, you know, shooting this basically as a comedy, but with sensitive subject matter. Uh, we know that some people will not like our approach to it. We're, but we're, we understand that and we're okay with it because we are confident in the way that we did it. Um, yes, as far as Magnolia goes, they they have been getting the film out there and been, have been doing a wonderful job. I mean, we're here, you know, at the Sydney Film Festival and it, this is our international premiere and it's going to be a great rollout after this. And uh, they, it looks as if there's distribution here in this country through Rialto and um, a lot of other territories have been picking it up, which is great. It's just great to get the film out there. You work so long on it and, you know, you, you, you want it to see the light of day. Questions? Hi, just curious, uh, what was the editing process like uh, in terms of ratio and uh, what software did you use and the final, how did you go to the final product online? Okay, we, uh, we used Final Cut 7. And I, um, I this, I'm sorry, if the, I'll make it fast, it's a little techie here, but we went, we captured the footage um, on H.264 and transcoded it to ProRes, edited on Final Cut Pro, out, output our QuickTimes, brought them into the DaVinci on the Avid DaVinci and colored it there. And then our final was an output from the DaVinci. Questions? Yes. 
Hi, uh, thank you. Uh, when did the Duplass brothers become involved with the film? Uh, very early on. They were the ones who basically made it happen because they were the executive producers and financiers along with, um, through films, Marcus and Carrie Cox, um, who were introduced to me by Mark Duplass. Uh, they, they, were f they were a fan, both bro the brothers were fans of my previous film, uh, Prince of Broadway, and they had one, at one point said to me, if you ever want to make a film with us, the door's open. And, uh, well, I, 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 I can't stand making micro-budget films anymore. <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that. I mean, it's good to make a micro-budget your first time out or your second time out, but I've been doing it five times now, and it's not paying the rent, you know what I'm saying? So, but, uh, so after my fourth film, Starlet, I was hoping to increase my budget and work in, you know, in the couple million dollar range. Um, that wasn't happening because the industry in, in the States right now is really a mess. And uh, I, after about a year and a half of frustration, I, I remembered Mark had said this to me. And I, I called up Mark and I said, I guess I'm ready to make another micro budget. <laughs> and he said, okay, cool. <laughs> he asked me my idea. I gave him this small treatment, a five-page treatment that Chris and I wrote. He, he liked it a lot and said, go ahead, start your research. So do you think this film's going to change things for you? Because obviously it's not very easy to make a living for, as an indie filmmaker. You, you never know. I, I can't, it's hard for me to answer that. I'm not going to answer that. Basically, I was just wondering, um, because of the micro-budget nature of, of all your films so far, um, sometimes the comedy's been sort of... Um, labelled as like B-movie sort of comedy that's a bit, um, yeah, it's, it's B-movie comedy that's very like self-deprecating. Do you want to carry that over to future films, even with bigger budgets? Like more intimate, self-deprecating uh, humour? It's a little echoey, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. really... I, uh, could you repeat, could you repeat it? it? Yeah. Sorry, I come down more. Um, basically, because you've worked on such small budgets, I guess the comedy has been labelled as like B-movie comedy, like it's very self-deprecating, um, very like, intimate humour. Do you want to carry that over to future films even if you have a bigger budget? Is that the goal? Whether the sensibility is the same? I think it's over? the sensibility. Talking about like the sensibility moving into uh, more mainstream cinema? Uh, yeah, well, hopefully. I mean, uh, I don't want to suddenly change up the way I think <laughs> or the way that my team thinks. I think, I, you know, I've surrounded myself with a lot of um, similar, you know, like my people. So it's, uh, I don't know whether, and I, and I like to direct the stuff that I write or co-write. So hopefully that continues. Um, yeah. But you know what? I just thought about something. You're answering the question you just asked. Um, I actually... For me, right now, it's more important for this film to help out um, my cast, you know, and I and that's the most important thing for me. I mean, if Maya and Kiki are able to parlay this into the careers that they want, that would be the ultimate success. Not my success. I mean, I I've been okay. I've been surviving. Um, but, you know, Maya and Kiki both are, you know, aspiring actresses. They're both wonderful. And 
you know, Maya has already starred in, uh, she's, she just did, she just played Marsha P. Johnson in a short film that was shot in New York that this film helped her get. So it would be just incredibly wonderful to see the industry, you know, uh, embrace these two one, uh, very talented women. And uh, I want to see, I want to see that happen. Um, you fairly recently moved from New York to LA. You're a New Yorker by birth. Um, tell us, paint a picture of the two different indie film scenes in those two cities. Uh, well, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, it's, it's not like those collectives that existed in the 70s and 80s where there was a lot of collaboration. I, I think that, you know, as filmmakers, you often don't really get to interact with other filmmakers unless you're at a venue like, like uh, the Sydney Film Festival and you know, you're, you're at the festivals touring and that's when you get to talk to other filmmakers about uh, their process and, and uh, their thoughts on the industry, etc. Um, but I do see something growing in LA that I like and it's this sort of this indie film community that has come out because basically New York is getting too expensive to live. And, um, and I see it growing and I see there, there are a few venues in Los Angeles and I think that you have a similar one here, like a nice little uh, retrospective cinema here in Sydney. And I don't know, I forgot the name of it. <laughs> Sorry, I... Do you think it was the golden age? Very small, I think very... perhaps, yeah. There are a few of those in Los Angeles right now that attract... That, and there's one called Cinefamily. And because it is a family, and you, 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 we come out for screenings, we get to talk to each other there, and it's becoming way more communal. And, and I see that stuff starting to rise in LA, which is great. Um, yes. Questions? What was the micro budget? The, the budget of the film? I, unfortunately, I can't really say, and especially because it's a podcast, but uh, I've been advised my, by my producers not to say, but it's extremely low. It's extremely low for a feature. It's half of, less than half of the budget of my previous film, which was a, another reason why it was difficult to jump into this one because it felt like a step back. But, um, but at the same time, I'm really happy with the final product, and uh, so... So I'm okay, but yeah, uh, tiny, tiny budget. We, we define micro. <laughs> we'll tell you later, but it's a secret. There's a, one at the back. Yeah, sorry, mate. Um, when you said you used an anamorphic lens, was it just uh, one fixed lens, or was there, did you have a zoom lens? One or fixed adapter, and then as you know, the iPhone, unless you're using the digital zoom, it's fixed, and I don't, you know, I don't advise you to use the digital zoom. So, uh, yeah, you're fixed at that. I love, I'll come to you later, um, I love the music in the film, what, what was your thinking behind the kind of music track that you set that film to? Um, maybe it was the lack of thinking, <laughs> I, was, I was losing my mind while I was editing this film and I was staying up all night editing um, and I... I, at the time, a year and a half ago, I was trying to incorporate a lot of social media into this, into this film and the way that we cast and the way that we made it look and the way that, you know, new media, not really social media, but new media and apps, etc. And at the time, I was a Vine addict, you know, Vine, the 
the app, right? So at night, I would just, to give myself a break from editing, I would be watching these six-second videos just to make myself laugh and for, for a break. And I was following this one Viner. She's 19 years old out of New York. Uh, her name is Wolf Tyla. And um, she puts up six-second videos of her music, uh, hip-hop, um, just her sometimes just cracking jokes, etc. But there was this one time that she put up six seconds of this tr of what's called trap, T-R-A-P, trap music, and which stems from I think the early '80s, Baltimore and New Jersey. Um, it's a it's a version of hip hop, and and I heard six seconds of it, and I was so intrigued. I I thought, oh my God, this this the beat, the vibe of this music fits Tangerine. And now we had already shot Tangerine. We already shot it. I was in post at this point. And I took, I, I found the track by going on message boards and just seeing what Wolf Tyler posted. Found the track. It happened to be um, a DJ Hemi and DJ Light Up, two 17-year-olds out of Newark, New Jersey. I contacted them directly through SoundCloud, and I said, I love your track. I, I would like to use it in the film. They, get, they granted me permission. I threw, it on the t I threw it on the first scene of the film, and it just cut like it, it seemed like it was just you know serendipity it, it, the that my cuts worked with the beats of the song and and from that point on I knew I think we found our musical style and and then we just I started exploring other trap music and I used um which is a wonderful tool for independent filmmakers uh SoundCloud because it gives you the opportunity to reach out directly to the artists and and if you're making a micro-budget film, they might be up for, you know, you can explain to them, we don't have much money, but we can give you a little bit and, ex and hopefully exposure. And it's a collaborative thing. And uh, so we ended up finding almost the entire soundtrack through SoundCloud. And there are 35 songs and all individual artists. And, uh, and at the end, we give a whole page to their, you know, their, 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 social networking tags. There, was a, there were a lot of shots in the film where the girls are walking away from us, which gave it a kind of documentary sort of feel. Is that what you were thinking to you, using a lot of them? Sure, yeah. I, uh, you know, that is almost a staple in these sort of movies now. I've following the character from behind, um, I guess just... It is a very docu-style approach. Uh, in this case, though, I was able to, because of how small the unit was and the fact that we were shooting on this with this smoothie, this, this, this uh, stabilizer, I was actually able to get on a bike, a bicycle, literally a 10-speed bike. I was a bike messenger in New York at one time, so I was used to this. And I got up on the sidewalk with them, and I was able just to track with them and control the speed by controlling my bike. And I would have the, my left hand on the, on the, um, on the bar, and uh, with my right hand, I was holding the smoothie. And it just allowed me to just be constantly following them or doing 360s around them. And, uh, and it was also, but that, that was also early on in the shoot where we were, there was a lot more, we had more time on our hands to still be fleshing out the characters. So I used that time to really just talk about subjects. And we shot probably just a few hours of them just walking and talking. And so that's how that came about. 
How many iPhones did you drop in the making of this film? Uh, we, we purchased three um, and ended up using really only two at a time. The third one was a backup. Uh, the one thing about using the iPhone is that it is, you know, it isn't a totally professional piece of equipment and, and there's going to be um, between two phones, you might, the settings might be slightly different, a slightly different look. And we found that one had more grain than the other two. So we sort of abandoned this one after a while. But um, yeah, I would say for the most, most of the film was either a one or two, one or two camera shoot. I actually meant drop on the ground as you were riding. Oh, dro- your I'm sorry. I meant I <laughs> thought slang dropping. In. Um, I we never dropped a phone. No, I think collectively we've all learned to hold on to our phones, and they all had Mophies as well. We used um, we always had a Mophie. We always had some sort of uh, protective case. There was a question at the back. The guy in the hat. Hi, um, congratulations on the film. I saw it last night and it was amazing. Oh, it was um, really emotionally moving, I think, which was, yeah, it was, I was just amazed. Um, <laughs> it's nice to I hear, thank you. Um, I wondered, using the fixed focal length, um, whether you were ever apprehensive since it was quite wide to do close-ups. Like I know when it started in the Donut King or Donut Time, whatever it was, um, like they were very close up and like you knew it was a wide lens. Yeah. Yes, yes. There were a few shots in the film in which we decided to remove the, uh, the adapter and go in for close-ups because if you're using the adapter, anamorphic, an anamorphic wide-angle lens will distort faces. And there were some times in the film where it just didn't feel right <laughs> to distort Maya's face, especially when she's singing and... Yeah, so, so we decided to take the adapter off, get in close, and then mat in post. But I think that we've only... And, and, and that, that reduces the resolution of, of your final product. But that's only for about maybe about 15 shots in the entire film, if that. Maybe 10 to 15 shots in which uh, we, we got in there close without a wide angle. Um, but yes, we're set at that, that focal length. And what was interesting for me was that I think it ended up really helping us. Because in my previous films, I use a lot of telephoto. You know, there's that tendency with social realist films to be sort of in an observational mode, which keeps us at a distance. It's almost National Geographic in a way. It's, it's, you know, you're shooting people from across the street and you're never really involving yourself. You're you're witnessing and you're observing, but you're not in there. And um, what this film... What, what happened in this case, and we were forced to do it because of the, the, the set focal length, was to get the cameras up into our, 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 our actors' and actresses' faces. So, so it really, I think, what, what hopefully what it does is that it gets the audience to participate in their story and to be more involved and immediate in their, in their interaction and the chaos that's going down that day. Um, and so I really think that that helped out. It really, it actually, if anything, that really kind of, uh, I think I'm going to approach my next film that way. You know, I've been stuck in this sort of telephoto uh, way of shooting for a while. And now I feel like actually getting intimate with up and, up and personal, up close and personal with my characters. And I think that that's something that the, uh, another one of these benefits that the iPhone revealed to us while shooting.
Is there a lucky last question? Yes. Last night's movie was brilliant. Um, Thank you. I hope you, and I, I reckon you will get to make your celluloid movie next time. Um, you will get funds. You've been fighting for so long. Someone will give it to you, or a lot of people will give it to you. Um, if this question's been asked before, I'm sorry to repeat it, um, how many times have you gone out in a week in women's clothes and played the transgender role at parties? How many times have I done that personally? Yes. <laughs> I, I, ha I have not. Uh, well, no, I not... did it last night in Sydney for the first time at 53, and all I did was get a beer and go to the movies, but it's... I'm not going to do it in the suburbs. It's still too scary, but it's kind of fun. You right, should right. try it. I, I, I'm sure I'll be talked into it soon. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but uh, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> How could we not end on that question? Yeah. <laughs> Please give Sean a big round of applause. Thanks very much, and thanks very much for Thank you for having us. me. Thank you.